good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll check in with the director of Pivot Arts as the creative nonprofit turns 10 and launches a new performance experience. The dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel, will join me to review court theaters, church like the Gospel at Colonus. Later in the show, we'll visit the Chicago History Museum's new exhibit, Back Home, Polish Chicago. I'll catch up with the director of a documentary about an enigmatic chef, and we'll remember the great Tina Turner. All that's coming up. Thanks for making time for some arts and culture this morning. A Chicago-based performing arts organization dedicated to supporting multidisciplinary work is celebrating its 10-year anniversary. Pivot Arts has been a consistent supporter and presenter of innovative work for the past decade. The nonprofit is continuing that tradition with a new performance program called The Memory Place. It features five unique pieces that all fall under a larger theme of forgotten or erased stories. I recently caught up with Pivot Arts founder and director Julianne Eyre to talk about this new project and the organization's milestone anniversary. I know a few days ago, Pivot Arts held its 10-year anniversary celebration. I hope the event was successful and you raised lots of money. Yeah, it was great. We had 90 people on an indoor-outdoor rooftop in Uptown, and it was a fantastic celebration. A lot of artists and board members from the past showed up and present people, and it, it felt great just because we actually haven't had an in-person fundraiser since before the pandemic. So this was the first time we were able to gather like that. Air launched Pivot Arts in 2012 because of a void she saw in Chicago's creative landscape. The impetus for founding the organization, which remains true to this day, is to support artists who are working across genres, so theater, dance, music artists, but also artists who use all of those elements in their work. And you don't see a lot of that in Chicago. We're pretty siloed in this city between theater companies and dance companies and music venues. Uh, So we really wanted to be a pivot point, hence the name, uh, a hub for innovative artists and to support that kind of work. So 10 years is a pretty significant milestone. What stands out when you think back about the past decade? 10 years for a not-for-profit arts organization, especially living through a global pandemic, is very significant. So Chicago is, is known for being a city of a lot of small, scrappy theater companies, especially. But we really need to become a city where we have thriving arts organizations have a greater level of support. I'd love to see in Chicago more kind of mid-sized arts organizations. You know, we tend to have very large institutions and very small companies, but artists and arts administrators need to be in an environment that's sustainable. So if you think about some of the the challenges that you were looking to to get into 10 years ago, have you seen some improvement over the past decade? Uh, I think I've seen just a tenacity in myself 
<laughs> and the people I work with to keep it going. Uh, and I really think our one of our proudest moments was spring of 2020 when everything shut down. We were just about to hit go with our festival so we were just about we had you know raised money and we're just about to spend money and um and then the pandemic hit and we had to cancel everything but instead of just remaining silent we pivoted no better word um to an online festival we prioritized paying our artists and then um quite tragically the murder of george floyd happened which became a major social reckoning in the United States, uh, especially among arts organizations, to be more equitable. But I have to say, we didn't need to shift in that moment because we were already an incredibly equitable organization from the get-go. For the past 10 years, we have consistently supported, nurtured, presented, produced artists of color. And when that social uprising happened we were supposed to actually open you know virtually open online the pivot arts festival with a live streaming event and we paused out of respect for what was happening um but we didn't have to change our programming because so many of our artists were black artists latinx artists asian artists artists of color queer artists and i just felt extremely proud and i continue to feel really proud that pivot arts has very genuinely been a home for everybody across the city. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking with Julianne Eyre, the founder and director of Pivot Arts. The nonprofit is celebrating its 10-year anniversary. Kind of a busy period for you. I know you just had the fundraiser, and then coming up on June 1st, a big program is starting, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But since you referenced the Pivot Arts Festival, I'm curious, so is that taking a break this year, or is this program that's coming up, is that taking its place? Yeah, it being 10 years and it being a challenging past few years for live performance, I really felt the need to do something a bit different. Our goal had been in 2019 um, to really move towards not presenting, just, you know, hiring a group and presenting their work and paying them and saying goodbye, good luck. We really wanted to be more of a development organization that supported the development of artistic work. And then the festival was going to be an avenue to then present work that we had helped develop. Um, So what we did this year instead of the festival, it's still a little similar to the festival, is we took proposals from artists around the prompt of uh, cultural memory and we're creating a piece called The Memory Place, which is taking place at the Edge Theater, but we're using the space very creatively, almost as if you're, as an audience, you're going to move around the space almost as if you're in a gallery setting and there'll be several short performances But they're all tied together around this theme of cultural memory and hidden histories and stories from the past that haven't um, been told. So it's a little bit like the festival, but different. (laughs) Right, right. Did you have pieces in mind or artists in mind that you wanted to, to work on this? How did it all come together? Yeah, so we did not have artists in mind. So uh, the impetus for the piece was a year ago, I was invited as part of a cultural exchange between American and Polish theater artists. 
Um, so I'd been part of this exchange on Zoom during the pandemic, and then I was invited by the Center for International Theater Development, which is based in Baltimore, uh, to travel with uh, staff members to meet uh, some of the artists who in Poland who'd been part of this exchange. And one thing that came up while I was there uh, meeting artists is it's such a different country. They've been through world wars and uh, Soviet occupation. And, you know, there's just so much history is just still impacts everybody to this day, which I guess is true everywhere. But there's kind of more of an awareness of that history and Several artists that I talked about, uh, talked with, have a PhD in cultural memory, and it's something that they're very engaged with in their academic and artistic work. And part of that is, um, you know, Jews were a very large minority population in Poland and Warsaw, especially before the Holocaust. And you know, after I don't know the exact figures, you know, six million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust. I think. 30% of Warsaw's population was Jewish, and they're all gone. And then during communism, they didn't really talk about that. There's like this reckoning happening with young theater artists and wanting to delve into that painful history. And it was so parallel to the moment that we're having in the United States where, you know, we haven't really talked in the United States about how indigenous people were treated. Uh, we haven't talked a lot about slavery and Jim Crow and institutionalized racism. And, you know, there's just this moment now politically where, you know, there's this battle happening between whose stories get told, you know, books being banned that mentioned uh, being gay. Uh, there's so much controversy over that in the United States, and it seems so related to what's happening in, in Poland in a way that was very fascinating. So that really became the impetus for this piece is wanting to really tell stories that haven't been told to explore this idea of cultural memory. So uh, I joined together with my collaborator, Eli Newell, who is a theater director who uh, really focuses on uh, site-specific work. And we put out a call for artists to apply, and really all of the artists that we're working with have never worked with Pivot Arts before, so it's all folks that are new. Each of them has a very specific story that they want to tell related to either their personal history or their cultural history, um, stories that haven't been told before. So all the pieces are tied together through this theme of cultural memory. And the pieces selected for the Memory Place highlight a diverse cross-section of cultures and artistic disciplines. Actually, I invited uh, one of the Polish artists, Wojciech Zemelski, is a very well-known Polish theater director, because I thought it would be really interesting to have an artist from Poland being a part of it. So he's the one artist that I knew in advance. But everyone else is a Chicago-based artist for the most part. All of them just applied, and we interviewed them about their proposal, and it all seemed to be a good fit for the project and also different stories. There was a good balance. We have Marisol Vera and Elisa Vera Ramos, who are a mother-daughter team. Marisol is a celebrated novelist. She wrote a book called The Taste of Sugar, and her daughter is a theater director. So they're doing a short piece about Puerto Rican women's experience. And then we also have a group, Island, which is an Asian-American Pacific Islander dance collective, doing a short piece that involves uh, sound installation and dance um, on Japanese internment camps and how 
that experience impacts the perceptions of Asian today. And then Devon Suttles is a tap dancer who's exploring queer relationships and religion in a piece where he's using gospel music, tap dance, mixed media to tell a story just about relationships between queer folks and religious organizations in a piece called Pass the Heavens. And as I mentioned, Wojciech Zemilski is uh, based in Warsaw, and he made a short uh, video that's an exploration of the history of where his apartment building is in Warsaw. And then finally, we have uh, an artist, Lucky Stiff, who's a trans non-binary director, writer, performer, who's very well known, who's performed at the Museum of Contemporary Art and Steppenwolf and other larger venues. And they are creating a short piece that's like an exploration of gender and identity. Those are the artists. Obviously, some audience members will have very specific connections to some of those pieces that are going to mm-hmm. be part of this. Others yeah. won't. Maybe learning about something. There is a universal quality to the theme that you've created here. But do you have hopes for what the people who come to this leave with? Yeah. So one, you know, we want them to leave feeling like they had a very unique performance experience. And then the second thing is, you know, art creates empathy. I going and hearing stories from different kinds of people and different backgrounds, different culture, really unites us and makes us aware of other people's experiences and how they're similar to our own or different from our own. So we hope that people just leave with a greater sense of empathy and understanding for the human experience. That's Julianne Ayer. She's the director of Pivot Arts, the nonprofit's new performance program. The Memory Place is running June 1st through June 11th at the Edge Theater in Chicago. You can find more info at pivotarts.org. This is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. A true music legend passed away this week. Tina Turner died Wednesday after a long illness at her home near Zurich. Turner was an unstoppable singer and stage performer whose career lasted over five decades. First teaming up with her then-husband Ike Turner for a dynamic run of hit records and live shows in the 60s and 70s, she famously survived a horrifying marriage to Ike and embarked on a chart-topping second act of her career in the 80s and 90s. Born Anna Mae Bullock in a segregated Tennessee hospital, the future pop icon started her singing career in the Nutbush Spring Hill Baptist Church Choir. After moving to St. Louis as a young adult, she met Ike Turner. In 1960, Turner first sang a lead vocal with Ike's band after a session singer failed to show up. Her stand-in performance of A Fool in Love was a hit on both the pop and R&B charts. Ike immediately rebuilt his act around Tina, and they married in 1962. They enjoyed professional success with a string of hits including Proud Mary, but things were not happy between the two behind closed doors. As she recounted in her memoir, I, Tina, Ike began hitting her not long after they met in the mid-1950s and only grew more vicious over the years. Provoked by seemingly anything, he would throw hot coffee in her face, choke her, or beat her. Before one show, he broke her jaw, then she went on stage with a mouthful of blood. 
In July of 1976, Tina fled with just a handful of loose change in her purse and spent months hiding with her friends while suing Ike for divorce. Turner was among the first celebrities to speak candidly about domestic abuse and became a hero to battered women and a symbol of resilience. A second turning point in her singing career came in 1983 when David Bowie told Capitol Records that she was his favorite singer. A version of Al Green's Let's Stay Together followed. The track went to number 6 in the UK and then cracked the US Top 30. Turner continued her momentum the next year with the release of the album Private Dancer. Thanks to the hit song, What's Love Got to Do With It?, the album was a massive success. You must understand the touch of your hand makes my folks react. Over the course of her career, Turner sold more than 150 million records worldwide, won 12 Grammys, was voted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice, once with Ike in 1991 and on her own in 2021 and was honored at the Kennedy Center in 2005. Her life became the basis for a film, a Broadway musical, and an HBO documentary in 2021 that she called her public farewell. I personally recommend that documentary. It's titled Tina. It provides a great overview of Turner's extraordinary life, and it's all in her own words. It's available to stream on HBO Max. Tina Turner was 83. She was a true original and an inspiration. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Oh, good morning, good Gary. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Memorial Day weekend to everybody. Happy Memorial Day to the both of you. Some people listening might be on their way to church this morning. Court Theater's latest sounds similar to a church-like experience, more on the Pentecostal end of the spectrum. It's called The Gospel at Colonus, a reimagining of Sophocles' Oedipus at Colonus. It was conceived and adapted by Lee Brewer and Bob Telson in the early 80s. I'll rely on the critics to get into the details of this take on the Oedipus story. While The Gospel at Colonus premiered in New York and eventually ran on Broadway, Carrie, there was a, a Chicago production that ran in 1990? There was a Chicago production at the old Goodman Theater, where the modern wing of the Art Institute now stands. I don't remember if you saw that one, Jonathan, but it is definitely etched into my memory, as well as the memory of many people who saw it. It was quite the, uh, quite the star-studded affair. Uh, High-profile names, including the five blind boys of Alabama in the chorus, uh, pop staples of the of the you know world renowned staples gospel family. The late great Johnny Lee Davenport, longtime Chicago actor, was in that as well. Uh, the story is, as you mentioned, is coming from Sophocles' Oedipus at Clonus, which is the second in the trilogy about Oedipus. And Court Theaters in the process of staging all of these. They did do um, Oedipus Rex, I think, right before the I think right before the shutdown, and they are planning on doing Antigone next season. In this story, Sophocles is uh, Oedipus, for those of you who who are joining us late, you know, after <laughs> several thousand years, um, has through an oracle had been told that he would kill his father 
and end up sleeping with his mother. He left town. He sees a stranger on the road as a young man. They get into an altercation. He kills this man. He ends up marrying a woman, Jocasta, who ends up being, whoops, his mother, and he has four children with her. When all of this is revealed, he blinds himself and leaves the kingdom of Thebes. Um, it, that's the first story. You know, in the second part, Oedipus has come to a town uh, just outside Thebes, and he is seeking respite. He is being led around by his daughter Antigone, who has been in exile with him, and he is really looking for a last place to lay his head spend his final days. And then the story, as Leroyer and uh, composer Bob Pelson imagines it, takes place as a sort of black Pentecostal service. Uh, there's not a lot of actual gospel music. Most of this is original um, music, as opposed to gospel standards. But uh, And the gospel standard that a lot of people might recognize is lift him up. But it's through this telling that we learn not just about Oedipus's story, but he learns to confront his, his story, his past. And I think, Jonathan, I'd love to hear you talk about it, and particularly if you saw the, the Goodman production, if it was as memorable for you as it was for me. I did see the Goodman production, and it was absolutely memorable. And I must say that I think this production is equally as memorable. This is a very short run. It's scheduled to close June 11th, and I do hope that Court Theater finds a way to extend this by a Absolutely. week or two, especially since this this show has not been produced in Chicago in, in 30-some years now. Uh, and it is a wonderful reimagining of a 2,400-year-old Greek tragedy <laughs> as a black gospel church service. And it's really one of those rare leaps of creativity that both respects the source material, but also enlarges it. Um, as has already been noted, Oedipus at Colonus is the original source, a play written when Sophocles, the playwright, was nearly 90 years old. It's, it's in terms of the, of the Oedipus uh, trilogy, the Thebes trilogy, it's the second in the sequence, right. but it was actually the last play uh, that Sophocles wrote just the year before he died, but that's neither here nor there. After years of wandering, uh, Oedipus finds sanctuary at Colonus, and knows he's going to die there. But before he does, he rejects pleadings from both his uncle, Creon, and his son, Polynices, who seek his blessing for a civil war that they are about to fight for control of Thebes. And Oedipus basically says, a curse, a plague on both your houses. <laughs> yes. He dies, Oedipus dies, and he's transfigured into a shining, positive presence for the city of Colonus that has given him sanctuary. This adaptation by Lee Brewer closely follows the structure of the original play, although it really doesn't spend very much time explaining what's going on between Oedipus and Creon and Polynices, mm -hmm. and that'll be a little bit difficult to, to pick up if, if you don't really know the story. Because this is a, a spiritual work rather than a political work, and it focuses on the ideas of sanctuary and absolution and acceptance and a peaceful death. Its gospel setting transforms the pagan original, and this was, you know, an ancient Greek play in which Apollo was the central god, but making it a gospel story transforms the pagan original into a work that affirms Judeo-Christian beliefs. Also, in a close contemporary interpretation, the idea of providing Oedipus with sanctuary may reflect our present-day conflict over refugees, although that isn't its central theme. Right. 
I would also say there was something very special about seeing this on the South Side. Anytime you, you know, I, I thought about this when I saw it in Chicago as well, because Chicago is such a birthplace of of gospel music with Thomas Dorsey's Pilgrim Baptist Church just a few miles up up the road from court. And I understand that it's soon to be the National Museum of Gospel Music. Mm. Uh, not all of the performers who are singers are necessarily people who are uh, known primarily as actors on Chicago stages, but they are heavy hitters in the gospel world, including Sherry Addison, who does the solo on Lift Him Up. Um, the Kelvin Rostin Jr. is playing Oedipus, and he is returning to the role from when he played Oedipus Rex a few years ago. Timothy Edward Kane is a, is a well-known Chicago actor, but I, this chorus is just so amazing. All of them have these voices that are just absolutely soul-stirring, and I mean that in every sense of the word. Uh, directed by Mark J.P. Hood and Charles Newell, the whole court auditorium is filled, and this was something that was a little harder to do, as I recall, in the old goodness space. The aisles are filled with them at the beginning. They are really interacting with us, although nobody's going to be dragged up on stage to sing or dance. Don't worry about that. But we really are not just asked to be spectators. We are asked, I think, in this show to really be witnesses in the most spiritual sense of the word, as you have yeah. as you have pointed out, Jonathan. And I yeah. found that to be quite, quite, um, just, just thrilling and absorbing. Well, you know, I, I made the point that this uh, that gospel, the gospel at Colonus is respects, but also enlarges its source material. And if you had seen a Greek tragedy, if you had seen this 2,400 years ago, first of all, the original would have been at least half sung and chanted and danced. There was a tremendous amount mm-hmm. of music that was part of Greek tragedy. But also the chorus represents the audience, so the audience seeing one of these are called upon to be right. witnesses and not simply passive uh, audience members. And uh, using uh, contemporary gospel music in the score composed by Bob Telson really brings it to the here, the here and now. The music rocks in a splendid production, as you have noted, uh, co-directed by Charles Newell and Mark J.P. Hood, who is also notably the musical director. Soaring, big voices, a dynamic, vibrant cast. It's also a handsome production with a kind of sort of, you know, abstract megachurch setting uh, by John Culbert and uh, in the scenic design, and warm-colored flowing costumes, which I like very much, by Raquel Adorno, that kind of channel choir robes and also channel, you know, Greek classical tunics, and everyone is in pseudo-Greek sandals, which I, which I like. Right. I must also highly praise the crystal-clear beautifully balanced sound design by Sarah Ramos. Absolutely. I, I just feel like this show is... It, there's Black Ensemble Theater, which we've also covered in the past, as they joke about going to Black Ensemble is, is just like going to church. Well, <laughs> in this case, going to court theater, as you said, it is like going to church. But I don't think it's anything that, if you're not a person of faith, that you cannot identify with. And it's interesting to think about, you know, what what is the role of faith? You know, can you escape your fate? Or must you always be who you were fated to be? Or are there choices you can make along the way? At one point, the choral leader does tell Oedipus, anger has always been your greatest sin. So he may have been given this curse at birth, but it was in fact his own anger that led him to kill the man that he later learned was his father, you know, on the road to Thebes and setting all of this in motion. And it's not as if everything is tied up with a tidy bow. It can't be. Uh, Antigone will tell us more about that next season, but I don't want to give any spoilers on that. But I do feel like in this moment, this, this show really does offer a kind of balm 
that, frankly, I found very, very welcome. Um, I understand why we've had a... It, it, it's neither escapist, but nor is it completely dire and doom and gloom. I think it just hits this spot that's very difficult to find right now in, the, in terms of our discourse and in terms of a lot of what we've seen on stages. And for that reason, although it may have taken 33 years, I'm certainly very glad the court is doing the gospel at Colonus now. I am, too. I absolutely agree. Uh, my bottom line is that the, the Gospel at Colonus really is a must-see show, and you guys know I do not say that very <laughs> often, maybe once, maybe twice a year. It's 90 minutes of an upward-ascending musical energy. Uh, as the chorus urges us early on, live while you can, be happy as you can. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you'll be happy after seeing the show, and you're certainly going to feel very much alive. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And with the amount of resources it takes to put on something like this, it's probably rarely produced. Uh, absolutely, because yeah. you, it's not so much that you have to have people with the acting chops, so they have to have that. You have to have the musical chops, which is right. why, not that the show is produced often, but many times when it has been produced, uh, the producing organization brings in a whole actual gospel choir, as the, right. Goodman, as the Goodman Theater does. Uh, Court Theater has chosen to assemble its own wonderful set of 15 featured players and, and make them uh, a, a wonderful ensemble together. Court Theater's The Gospel at Colonus continues through June 11th. Before we ramp up, some theater news. I think Carrie got uh, the scoop on this early. Another uh, Chicago theater company has shut down. Yes, this would be Boho Theater. I believe that I uh, covered Tick, Tick, Boom. I think, Jonathan, you might have been out of town or in your undisclosed location when that played this last winter. That ended up being the last production by Boho. They've been around for 19 years, itinerant during most of, throughout all of that time, and a company that really showed a wide range of, of interests. They did everything from classics like The Merchant of Venice and Tartuffe to musicals. They did a production of Big Fish that was all received right before the shutdown. Um, And Tick, Tick, Boom, which is Jonathan Larson's uh, musical that predated Rent, uh, was given a a very striking uh, non-binary trans spin in uh, Beau Frazier's staging just this past winter. But Alyssa Swanson, who has been their artistic director since late 2021, uh, there's a letter up on their website explaining it, but as they told me, it was just a question of not being able to raise the kinds of funds that they wanted to do in order to produce with the values that they held close. And a lot of that has to do with pay equity. you know. And I think this is a fairly familiar story in Chicago theater, and Jonathan, I know you've been covering it a long time and would probably agree yeah. with me that you know, that, that we, we sing the praises of these plucky storefront companies, but we forget that particularly in the non-equity world, um, that comes at the cost of people not getting paid a lot, burning out. Um, and I think that's kind of the case here. There's not like a precipitating event. I don't get the sense there's anything acrimonious going on. It's just the gap between what we want to be and what we can currently be was just too great for them to feel that they could overcome that. Uh, so I will certainly miss them. I feel like they're ending, though, with integrity. And, uh, again, uh, having seen Tick, Tick, Boom, and I think, Jonathan, I think you and I may have discussed National Merit, their play from last fall as well, which was the first commission that they were able to do. So certainly their last season may be a little truncated, but with some high points. And as Elizabeth pointed out to me, they will certainly be doing work. You know, the stories will go on, the artists will go on. Um, It does, for me, uh, raise the question of, 
you know, what can we in the aggregate <laughs> as a community do to make it easier for people to commit to producing and, you know, doing this kind of work. And I, I don't know that I have any answers, but it certainly is something that comes up over and over and over again. So It's called money. That's what it takes. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it's uh, the question of we have money for buildings, do we have money for people? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's very bluntly how yes. I would put it. Yeah. And as you noted, Kerry, uh, in your in your story about this in uh, in the reader, that uh, uh, Boho never had a budget even of uh, what uh, two hundred thousand yeah. dollars. They were always yeah. under that one hundred and sixty-five thousand, one hundred ninety-five. Yeah, 000, I don't. Yeah, I don't think they ever had is, a lot of financial heavy hitters yeah. on their board. You know, and that, and it takes time to cultivate people like yeah. that as well. You know? and, and that's that's peanuts in today's. Uh, theater-producing world, and they made it go so far. They yeah. always had talented and gifted people on the stage. They did big musicals, challenging musicals. They were an ambitious company that produced well. Um, and, you know, I, I absolutely will will miss them. I certainly looked forward. That was This is one of the company whose, companies whose work I wanted to see, I was eager to see. And regrettably, running a theater company, running any not-for-profit organization, uh, arts organization, is not just about putting the art on stage. It also right. is about building the uh, the business and the management infrastructure, which includes the funding infra- infrastructure. And right. it's uh, regrettable that they were not able to realize their goals in the 19 years they've been in business. But you use the word integrity, and that's absolutely the idea that they do not wish to go forward if they cannot pay all their artists at least, at least a minimum wage is is an integrity that a lot of companies, uh, you know, non-equity companies do not have. You and I have talked about this several times, I think, on the program, Jonathan, that one of the things that came out of the COVID shutdown wasn't so much Yes, companies were left in the financial hole, but I think at the same time there was a reckoning that people had because they had this kind of enforced shutdown away from the grind of doing the work to think about, how do I want to do this work? Do I want to keep doing this in the way that I have? And I think maybe there's some of that with this boho decision that, you know, the way we were doing business maybe doesn't work so much. People really did have sort of an existential, you know, interrogation of themselves, and I think we've seen some of that with with companies as well. Um, I didn't get the sense when I talked to Elizabeth that it was necessarily that COVID killed them, but that there was a change of direction that they just weren't able to fully, you know, fully make happen. So, yeah, yeah. One of the unfortunate truths is that audiences, whether, you know, from Broadway to the smallest regional theater to the smallest storefront theater, audiences have not yet returned to their yeah. pre-pandemic levels. And the theaters are scrambling and, uh, and right. they're hurting. Chicago Shakespeare, Goodman, Steppenwolf, they have endowments. They, have, they can maybe ride out a little bit. You know, smaller companies like Boho that are working on these shoestring budgets just really don't. And if they don't quite get the, the audiences back, I don't, I don't know what numbers you've seen, Jonathan. I think I've seen like 30% down generally across the board. Um, yes. Yeah, and and that's that's a big chunk for companies that really depend on ticket sales. So I guess the best thing we can leave our listeners with today is that if there's a company you love, go see them now. <laughs> Buy tickets. <laughs> Get gift certificates <laughs> if they offer those. Really, really show them that you do appreciate their work and you want to see it continue. With that, we'll say goodbye, Carrie. Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're, you're welcome, welcome, Gary. <laughs> Baby, you understand me now 
I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the Earth Section. A documentary about one of Chicago's most well-known culinary figures is nominated for a James Beard Award. The Culinary Excellence Awards will be handed out on June 3rd in Chicago. Lots of adjectives have been used to describe the late Charlie Trotter. The chef was a trailblazer who pioneered several culinary concepts that are now commonplace in some of the world's finest restaurants. He helped put Chicago's restaurant scene on the map, creating the roots for a thriving tree of chefs that run some of the city's finest establishments. But Trotter is also often remembered as a temperamental and sometimes petty figure who was difficult to work with and for. Trotter passed away in 2013, a year after he closed his acclaimed restaurant, Charlie Trotter's. He was 54. Chicago-area native and now L.A.-based filmmaker Rebecca Halpern wanted to focus on the man more than the mythology in her documentary, Love Charlie. The film offers a nuanced look at a talented chef who described himself as enigmatic. I caught up with Halpern to talk about her journey to making Love Charlie. Was there something that, that sparked this idea to make a documentary about Charlie Trotter? So the producer of the film is a woman by the name of Renee Frigo. And Renee owns Oak Street Pictures. And before she got into the film and uh, documentary business, she actually had an olive oil company called Lucini. And Charlie Trotter, in the late 90s, early 2000s, started using Lucini in his kitchen and became a real champion of, of hers. And uh, she has long wanted to sort of tell his story. And because he came up pre-social media, his legacy now stands to be lost to time. You know, a lot of kids who didn't come up, you know, in the 80s and 90s have no frame of reference for Charlie Trotter because he didn't have an Instagram or, or Facebook account. So she wanted to find a way to cement his legacy. And she was able to do that with the documentary. So I was brought on to direct the film. I came from, you know, I grew up in Chicago. My mother was a food writer in the city. I moved to Los Angeles six years ago, but I really wanted to find a project that lets me pay homage to my roots and to the city that I love. And so when this opportunity came across my desk, I was like, 100%, I have to take it. Right, right. How familiar were you with Mr. Trotter and his, his restaurant coming into the project? So I never met Charlie personally. I had taken out, I couldn't afford to eat at his <laughs> restaurant. Um, uh, in my 20s when I was in Chicago, you know, living in the city. But my mother was a food writer. She wrote extensively about him. And I remember being like 10 years old when he first opened the restaurant and hearing about him like he was some kind of unicorn, right, that had fallen from the sky. And, you know, what he was doing at that restaurant was so revolutionary for the time period that he made his mark almost from day one. And uh, so I knew of him, but really what I knew was mostly what the media had said about him and how he was portrayed by them, usually uh, as a tyrant, an enfant terrible, someone who was a maverick and a trailblazer, but at the same time, maybe not the best person. And I, you know, when I got the opportunity to direct the documentary, the first question that I wanted to answer was, who was he really? Because I think when it comes to someone as complex as him, not a lot of people are willing to dig deep and really figure that out. 
Is it fair to describe Mr. Trotter as enigmatic? A hundred percent. In fact, he thought he was enigmatic himself. I mean, he knew that people had a hard time figuring him out. Uh, you'll see in the film, we have an extensive collection of postcards and letters that he wrote before he opened the restaurant, back when he was called Chuck. And he wrote a lot to Lisa Ehrlich, his first wife, about the fact that, you know, people wondered about him. Once again, he's a total enigma, he would say. And he just felt very isolated and alone. And I think that carried on through his adult life until he passed away. So having some familiarity with Charlie Trotters and and the man behind the restaurant, did you have a good idea of the people you would need to talk to in order to get context for the different aspects of his life? So when we started production on this, it was literally day one of the COVID quarantine. And we were faced with having to make some really difficult decisions about who to include in the documentary, what stories to tell, What physically could we shoot or not shoot? Where could we travel to? We made the conscious decision to tell a much more personal story than what somebody else might tell, you know, more of a survey style documentary where you're hearing from a bunch of different people, but you never go really deep. And I think that the people that we speak to in the film really paint a very clear, sort of well-rounded picture of the person. And it's a picture that I don't think a lot of people really knew before before this film. So I'm excited to see the reaction to it. I would imagine, given what we've heard, when you reached out to some people, was there some reluctance for people to talk on the record about him? There was. There was some reluctance. I think that Charlie Trotter's life story is kind of a cautionary tale for anyone who has to throw themselves into their work a million percent in order to achieve a level of excellence that's almost unreachable. And I think Charlie's identity became so intrinsically connected to his work that when the restaurant closed, he did in some respects. And so I think for a lot of well-known chefs in particular, I think his story really resonates in an almost negative way. I think for some of the chefs who worked for him, they certainly don't have, some of them don't have fond memories of having worked there for him. And I think by today's standards, one could say that he was abusive towards some of his staff. But I think if you understood Charlie and you understood where he was coming from and what his end game was, I think you appreciated and respected what he was striving for every day. And so the people who were in his orbit ultimately were the people who got it. And in the film, we do include one person, Grant Ackett, who's the co-owner of Alinea, and he describes his experience working for Charlie. And he had a very miserable one, and it was not a good fit for him. And yet, the story that he tells of his evolving relationship with Charlie, and later what he came to understand about him, I think it is really important because he he does appreciate the why. And that was really the whole goal in the movie anyway, was to create a little bit more empathy for Charlie Trotter. Charlie wrote a lot and tried to connect on a deep level with the people in his life before he opened the restaurant with his postcards and letters as Chuck, and then later at the restaurant with his 
you know, two 10-course tasting menus that he served every night, different menus every night. He really showed people in his life that he loved them by making an effort, and not just any effort, an excellent effort. And I really wanted to remember that time, you know, back when you had to go to the post office to buy a stamp and actually think about somebody else to send them a message. Um, it's not like text messages today, which feel very disposable. He really did care, and uh, I think that that comes through in the film. As you mentioned earlier, I think for maybe a younger audience, people not as familiar with Charlie Trotter, that what that name meant to people maybe in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. What was extraordinary about Mr. Trotter's approach to the culinary arts? Charlie was the first of a generation of celebrity chefs. He exploded onto the scene in Chicago at a time before the Food Network was even around. And so the world was kind of his oyster. His sister in the film says he was the right guy at the right place at the right time. Um, But it wasn't just Chicago. It was America. He brought to the United States so many different aspects of fine dining that are commonplace today, but that had never been done before. I'll give you a couple examples. These days, you go into a fine dining restaurant, and sometimes you'll see there's a kitchen, there's a table literally in the middle of the kitchen. Charlie Trotter had the idea to bring that table to the United States, put it in his kitchen, um, where people could eat, literally surrounded by, um, you know, the theater of the chefs who were cooking. Um, He was the first to sort of take vegetarianism and really make it a centerpiece of his work, building on what Alice Waters had started to do at Chez Panisse. But I think the thing that Charlie stands out for the most is his food photography that he used in his cookbooks. He was revolutionary in terms of how he photographed his food. He got up into the food, very personal, very intimate. He really made it, he used a kind of style of photography that's very similar to some of the food porn that you see today. And I think he did for cookbooks what Chef's Table on Netflix does for video content, which was shoot it in a whole new modern way that kind of shaped the conversation around that. You know, Charlie was also best friends with Emeril Lagasse. And it was very interesting to see Emeril rise up through uh, television and the the beginning of the Food Network. But that really wasn't Charlie's road. Charlie was an intellectual. He was very well read, despite being dyslexic. And he found a way through books to really sort of put himself, his cooking, and Chicago on the culinary map and make it the mecca that it is today. Does he maybe not get the, the credit he deserves for some of those things? gets the credit. I just think that the way the world works, he's been forgotten. In the film, Grant says, if you're not on top, you just don't matter. And for Charlie, unfortunately, I think the timing of his career was on the one hand amazing and great, but by the end of the restaurant, 2012, when it closed, he was not well. He had suffered from some health issues, which we explore in the film. And The quality of the restaurant had started to slip a little bit. And I think that, unfortunately, people took that as an opportunity to kind of crap on him in a way. And they used his downfall. They would mischaracterize what was happening to him 
granted, he did drink too much. Granted, he was very outspoken in, in a not-so-flattering, <laughs> well-meaning way um, at times in the media. But it was almost as if in the last years of his life, there was this kind of kindergarten playground pylon of bullying Charlie. And Anthony Bourdain said that himself. And people forgot what he did. And I think that it's important now that we remember where we all come from. Like, where does the food that we eat come from? Who was doing things, you know, like what Charlie was doing? You know, where where do our favorite chefs get their sort of repertoires from? And, and what is legacy? I had a local restaurant critic once told me uh, Chicago is obviously different than New York City and Los Angeles in many ways. But one is that uh, our hometown celebrities that that live here are athletes and chefs. And I think there's definitely a thriving restaurant scene in Chicago today. And diners not only know chefs' names, they they revere them. And it it seems to me many of the the city's top chefs are are connected in some way to to Mr. Trotter. There really is kind of this uh, tree that a lot of today's top chefs really come back to, to Charlie Trotter's, right? A lot of them. In fact, I set up a Google alert for a search anytime Charlie Trotter's name comes up. And I would say that since I started the project, not a day has gone by that I haven't gotten an article in my inbox where some chef has credited their time at Charlie Trotter's for helping sort of make them who they are. And he did a lot for a lot of chefs. I mean, if you count the number of Michelin-rated chefs that have come through his restaurant, you know, Grant Ackett's has had gotten three Michelin stars ever since he opened Alinea. Um, John and Karen Shields from Smith and the Loyalist are Michelin rated. I mean, I could keep going, but I, I'm afraid I'm going to leave somebody out. So right, right, right. I won't, I won't continue with that list, but it truly is the who's who of fine dining, not just in Chicago, but in America. Right. Watching Love Charlie, you know, you, the different people you have in the film, I was like, oh, that person worked for him. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. So many people were connected to that kitchen. It's remarkable. I'll give you a little backstory uh, inside baseball on the filmmaking. You know, there was a discussion happening among the producers about how do we honor every chef that's come through Charlie's kitchen? You know, do we do some sort of scrolling um, credits list at the end of the film that sort of pays homage to them? Because, you know, I think the other thing that we're learning about fine dining is that no single chef is an island. There is no such thing as a singular. There might be a singular personality in a kitchen, but ultimately the quality of the restaurant is dependent on the team of people that that chef you know, has in their employ. And we tried very hard to come up with this list and it just kept growing and growing (laughs) and growing to the point where we figured, you know, as much as we'd like to include everyone at the end of the day, that's the kind of thing that we hope people will go home and Google because it's certainly on the web in, you know, there's plenty of, of articles and things and information for people to find there. Well, Rebecca, I really enjoyed the film. I learned a lot. I appreciate you making some time to talk with me. Thanks for having me, Gary. This has been fun. That was Rebecca Halpern. She's the director of the documentary Love Charlie, 
Chicago-based Facets is presenting a special fundraising screening of the film on June 3rd. It'll feature Halpern and some of the people featured in the documentary. Ticket sales will benefit the Trotter Project, a nonprofit that offers scholarships and community programs. You can find more info about the event at facets.org. You're tuned into the arts section on WDCB. I'm Gary Zydek. The local Polish community is the focus of a new exhibit at the Chicago History Museum. Back Home, Polish Chicago features over 90 artifacts and more than 100 photos, all part of a comprehensive look at one of the city's largest ethnic communities. An estimated 1.9 million Polish Americans call the Chicago metro area home. Some have even said outside of Warsaw, Chicago is the largest Polish city in the world. That's not exactly true, but there's no denying the influence Polish immigrants have had on the area. It's definitely to say Chicago is the second largest Polish city outside of Warsaw. It might not be statistically accurate. However, it does speak to the fact that Chicago has historically, going back to the you know late 19th century, had a large Polish population and up to, you know, including to our own time. This is the Chicago History Museum's Peter Alter. He curated back home, Polish Chicago. I caught up with Alter after checking out the exhibit for myself. He says the idea for the exhibition was born almost a decade ago. So this uh, exhibition project actually started eight years ago this past spring with a conversation at a conference at Loyola University Chicago where the leadership of Chicago History Museum and the leadership of the Polish History Museum in Warsaw met. And the Polish History Museum in Warsaw proposed some kind of collaborative project uh, that would include both museums. Uh, and so uh, from there it developed into an oral history project, international exchange of youth um, from both cities doing interviews over there and over here and then eventually this exhibition. And so is there an exhibition over? Uh, The plan would be uh, for this, so we know this exhibition will be open for roughly a year. It will close in uh, June of 2024, and then it will, components of it will likely get packed up and go to the Polish History Museum in Warsaw. So the Polish History Museum is actually currently under construction on the Citadel and will be the first national history museum in the history of Poland and will be the largest single museum building in the country. While the inception of the exhibit was back in 2015, it took a few years before the project really started to come together. The oral history project was in 2018 and 2019, uh, and then I got busy on working on a different exhibition, uh, and then the start of the pandemic. So we've been working on developing both the storyline and borrowing artifacts, images, documents, uh, and developing other aspects of the exhibition for about the last 18 to 24 months, like almost full time, like 100% of my time. And in these galleries, almost all of the artifacts that you see on display and most of the photographs that are reproduced are borrowed from uh, Chicagoland's Polish residents. So we do have some materials in our collections, but we're able to tell these first-person stories with the oral histories and borrowing, you know, artifacts from Polish Chicagoans. Back home, Polish Chicago is divided into three parts, journeys, neighborhoods, and connections. The journey section 
highlights the immigration of people from the pole lands that began in the 1830s. Obviously, Chicago became a landing spot for a number of immigrant populations. What do we know now about why so many Polish immigrants ended up in Chicago? Yes, uh, that's a great question. So initially, when we're thinking about like 1800s to early 1900s, the start of World War I, uh, that's the forebred immigration uh, from the Polish lands when Poland didn't exist. And a lot of folks came here, you know, if listeners have ever read, of course, Upton Sinclair's classic novel, The Jungle, while the protagonist is Lithuanian, uh, there are a lot of Polish characters. And, you know, they're working and living, you know, in back of the yards and Bridgeport and on the north side as well in the Polish downtown area. And a lot of folks came here because in that earliest era because they um, were looking for jobs for bread. And they were able to come here because finally railroad and steamship lines were close enough to them that they could actually come here. But our exhibition does tell more than the story of those earliest immigrants. Uh, there's a post-World War II era of displaced persons. So they're fleeing you know, the aftermath of World War II and the Holocaust. There's the solidarity era immigration. A lot of folks are either fleeing a bad economy or political persecution. Uh, and then the post-communist or post-solidarity era when folks, again, are coming to Chicago to look for jobs. And that, and that ends really in the early 2000s when Poland joins the European Union and it's easier to go to places like Ireland or the UK when the UK was still part of, of the European Union. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking with Chicago History Museum curator Peter Alter about the institution's new exhibit, Back Home, Polish Chicago. Those first waves of Polish immigrants settled into different parts of the city, establishing several Polish patches. Basically, north side, uh, south side, and to some extent, uh, west side. So west side would be more like Pilsen Little Village and uh, Cicero, the west, near western suburb, but also back of the yards, Bridgeport, um, lower west side, and uh, west town, which, which was more the uh, what's known as Polish downtown. Uh, so think of Ashland Division and Milwaukee, right near the Polish Museum of America, which is one of our collaborators on this project. I've seen that museum just walking through the, the neighborhood, and it never really had occurred to me until recently that that must have been a, a hub for a wave of Polish immigrants. Yes, uh, so the museum is in uh, is in the building, uh, the beautiful building of the Polish Roman Catholic Union of America, which is the oldest uh, Polish organization in the U.S. So they eventually took up residence there as an offshoot of the PRCUA. And then later on in the exhibit, there is kind of a population map from, I think, 2012 to 2016. That's right. So we see some disbursements, but still a a pretty large Polish population here in the city of Chicago. Uh, We do see disbursement. Um, There is, to some extent, uh, still a Polish, uh, Polish population in Chicago. Uh, but of the region, Chicagoland, the split is about 80, 80% suburban and 20% urban. So people have, have left the city. Uh, and then more recent areas of immigration, rather than coming to a city neighborhood and eventually going to the suburbs, more recent Polish immigrants often move straight to the suburbs. 
And then the third part of the exhibit, Connections, what's the focus there? Yeah, that's, um, I think, people in an an exhibition about immigration, about an immigrant group, would expect journeys and neighborhoods when they think about Chicago. But Connections is about support from coming from over here, Chicago, Chicago land, to going to over there, uh, Europe in general, or uh, the Polish lands, or Poland in particular. So um, sort of the... The interactive, uh, kind of the physical manifestation of that is a touchscreen interactive where uh, users, players can pack packages and send care packages to Poland or the Polish lands during one of four specific eras. So you learn about how to support displaced persons after World War I or soldiers during World War II or the last era is Ukrainian refugees uh, coming into Poland last year, and so a lot, a lot of Polish communities in Chicago sent over, you know, jeans and shoes and and diapers, you know, to help support Ukrainian refugees coming into Poland. As we've discussed, so there are these uh, common threads among all immigrant communities that, that have come to America, that have come to Chicago. What are some unique aspects to the the Polish community here in Chicago? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So I think. Um, one of the chief unique aspects would be something we've already talked about, just the sheer size. Uh, and I think also um, in terms of especially European immigrant groups that while many of us know that there's an, an 1800s and early 1900s era of immigration, that uh, Polish immigrants and Polish refugees, displaced persons were coming to Chicago for nearly the entire 20th century and into the very early 21st century. So that um, Polish immigration was dynamic and ongoing for much of the 1900s. The exhibit also features some contemporary touches, including artwork from five local Polish artists. There's uh, five uh, what we're calling threshold areas. Uh, So our uh, exhibition designer, Jamie Topper, uh, was her idea. And she uh, recruited out of the local Polish immigrant, Polish American artist community, these five artists to develop art installations, sort of in interpreting exhibition content, as well as uh, kind of also uh, illuminating their own immigrant experience here in Chicago. That's Peter Alter. He's the curator of the Chicago History Museum's Back Home, Polish Chicago. The exhibit will be on display for a little over a year until June 4th, 2024. You can find more information at chicagohistory.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past segments and features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek, and I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. If you recognize this music, then you, you know tonight is the series finale for Succession. I can't wait to see what happens. Thanks for listening.